Good morning. There was a story that comes from the summer of 1940. A brand new bridge was opened in that summer. It was purported to be an architectural and engineering wonder. It was a sleek new bridge that spanned the Tacoma Narrows in the state of Washington. That is an inland waterway of Puget Sound. Uh, it connected the Olympia Peninsula uh, to the naval shipyards at Bremerton. It was sleek and well-designed, and they opened it in the summer of 1940. In just a few months, as the fall began to roll in and the weather began to drop, the, the temperature began to drop and the winds picked up, a moderate wind that blows through that channel through the winter began to cause that bridge to vibrate up and down. In fact, it became so noticeable that they dubbed the bridge Galloping Gertie because of the oscillations of, of, of the girders that were there. On November the 7th, the road's movements had grown in magnitude to such a level that the authorities were alarmed and closed the bridge. The bridge began, continued to contort in rhythms until uh, just a short time later, a 600-foot section of pavement broke free and fell into the water. Despite the elegant appearance and all of the hoopla about the, the ordering of that bridge, they began, a, a, they began an engineering analysis of the problem, and they determined that the engineers had used only a fraction of the standard stiffening depth, and that they had constructed the bridge too narrow for its length. So it wasn't deep enough, and it wasn't wide enough. And so as it turns out, the bridge could not withstand even moderate winds. The engineering report summarized its findings in this. It said the bridge failed because it was too flexible. We live in a generation where the physical world often gives us lessons for the moral and ethical world one of which is it is possible to be too flexible. We're told regularly that flexibility, that, uh, that being malleable is the key virtue of our age. Everybody's allowed to believe whatever they want to believe. Everybody's allowed to live by whatever code of conduct they establish for themselves. We're supposed to accept it all and to pretend alongside whatever belief system they've constructed in their bubble of a world. The reality, however, is that it is possible to be so flexible that you can no longer stand against even the slightest of breezes. There is a place, there are subjects, topics, issues for which we must prepare ourselves to go deep and wide so that we stand firm and that we are able to face what comes. We're in a series of lessons from the book of Ezra. Ezra has not been introduced until now. We find ourselves today in the seventh chapter, and Ezra is going to make his first appearance. Now, he's 
his name is, is on the book. He collected the materials. But you remember historically what's happened is that the first part of the book tells the story of a man named Zerubbabel who, under the charge of King Cyrus of Persia, was given permission and resources to return to their homeland of Jerusalem where they were to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel led a wave of returnees out of Babylon, out of a period of exile that had lasted a couple of generations, and they came, they established an altar, they worshiped the true God, they laid the foundation for the temple, then they were delayed, they faced some opposition, but 16 years later, they complete the temple and and reestablish the worship of the true God in the land that was given to them um, centuries before. Now, there's a gap in time between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. The gap is about 60 years. What's happened in those 60 years is that the temple has been constructed and the worship is happening, but the people have become increasingly uh, distressed or, or uh, discouraged by their inability to move beyond the construction of the temple. Jerusalem still has no wall. The city is still not safe. It is open to marauders who come at will, and, and the people are dispirited. Sixty years go by. Events happen back in Persia. Uh, by the way, just, just to give you a, a connection, uh, the book of Esther, the book of Esther on the timeline, the book of Esther happens between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. So in this gap, this 60-year gap that we have in the book of Ezra, what's happening back in Persia is that there's a plot to destroy all of the Jews. And a young Jewish girl who is caught up in, in a king's desire to, to have a new queen who is the most beautiful and, and, and the most presentable of any woman in the kingdom, you can go to the book of Esther and read the story. But a young Jewish girl gets caught up in that and is selected as the new queen. She's very reserved. She's not confident in herself. And this plot of, of those who are going to, to try and destroy the Jews comes to her notice, and she doesn't know what to do with it. And her uncle says, you've got to go tell the king. And she says, I can't go tell the king. I haven't been summoned to the king. I don't have the right to, to enter uncalled for into his presence. And, and, and her, her uncle utters those words that have been so... Uh, many times quoted, he says, who knows but that you were brought to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Everything that has happened has put you in a position of influence. You see, the Bible teaches us that God not only raises up and brings down empires and nations, but that he also puts individuals in positions of influence because they further his purposes by doing so. Esther goes in and she announces this plot against the Jews. It's uncovered. The Jews are saved. And possibly what happens is as a means of sort of um, making up for this plot, the king probably follows the example of Cyrus before him and gives resources to a new wave of Jewish returnees to come again to Jerusalem and help jumpstart the work that's going on in the land of Judah. 
the second wave that we're going to see that happens in Ezra chapter 7 is led by a man named Ezra. Now, what's interesting about Ezra, we're going to find out that he's a scribe. A scribe is simply a, an Old Testament word, that uh, a Hebrew word that describes somebody who is a professional copyist of Scripture. You see, the way that the Scripture had to be handed down from, from person to person in the ancient world was it had to be copied. And there was a very precise science to it all. They knew the middle uh, character on each page. They knew the middle character on each line. They knew the number of words on each page. They knew they had all of these measurements so that when a copyist would hand copy the Hebrew text of the, of, of the Old Testament, he would then go back and check the page and make sure that there were no mistakes, that he hadn't missed anything. It was a very technically uh, significant job. But in the process of spending that kind of time in the Word of God, scribes developed from copyists to actual students of the law and then teachers of the law. By the time we get to the New Testament, and, and we often hear reference to the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were the primary teachers of the law to the people of God who needed to know. So what we know about that is a scribe was typically a person who would have been a bookish personality. Ezra is probably, uh, the Bible tells us, it's going to tell us that he was very skilled at this, which means he was uh, sort of the pinnacle of his profession. He was very good at it. But we can tell the kind of person that, that became a scribe in the Old Testament was probably the kind of person that was content to sit at his desk, maybe in a cubicle, and just, just study, just be left alone. I don't think, in my sanctified imagination, I don't think Ezra was ever a man that had great leadership ambitions. I don't think that he was ever uh, ever set out to be uh, a, a mover and a shaker. I think, uh, I think his parents probably didn't raise him up to say, hey, one of these days you're going to lead men and they're going to go across the world and change things. I just don't think Ezra had that kind of personality. I think he was a bookish man who was content to do that. But here's what happened, and here's what I want you to understand can happen to you. He was a bookish man, but the choice of the book that he studied was the Word of God. And when you make the study of the Word of God a passion in your life, let me tell you something, I can promise you will become something you never imagined you could be. Bookish scribe Ezra throws his life into the Word of God. And we're going to see that the rest is history. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. As we go through this, this chapter, um, I, I want to I break it down to you because I really want the emphasis, because this was the emphasis of Ezra's life, I want the emphasis today uh, to be about the Word of God. I occasionally have people say things to me like... Um, I, I don't remember being at a church before that that's put so much emphasis on the Word of God that 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 was so uh, focused on the Word of God. I, I don't remember sitting under a pastor who who so often told his people, "You need to be in the Word of God every single day." And I always think that that's that's less a comment about us or about me than it is about the general state of of Christianity in this nation. 
Because frankly, the Word of God was never meant to be sort of a 400-level course. It was never meant to be for graduating seniors. The Word of God is, is the peanut butter and jelly of the spirit world. I mean, it is the basic sustenance that, that makes us able to live the life. And so we're going to talk today about, about how the Word of God needs to be in us, and, 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 and Ezra's going to be our example, showing what happens in a life that gives himself complete, completely to the Word. It starts with me with this point, understanding God's Word produces faith. Now, the first five verses of Ezra chapter 7, I'm not going to read them, but that is just a genealogy. It is a very impressive genealogy that shows that, that Ezra was descended from Aaron, the original chief priest, the brother of Moses. He has a very priestly line, but we're going to find out that despite all of this family that went before him, the generations of, of, of good and even great men that were before him, we're going to find out that it wasn't his lineage that made Ezra capable of doing great things in his generation, but it was his devotion to the Word of God. So this, this great, 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 great grandson of Aaron, it says this in verse 6, so this Ezra, this Ezra that is the descendant of all of these priests, this Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the... <coughs> Excuse me, because the good hand of his God was upon him. Ezra's highest commendation was not that he was a descendant of priests, it was that he was a skilled student of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament. He was an obedient follower of God's word and an effective teacher. We'll see that in just a minute. But God was pleased to use him in an extraordinary way because it seemed that. Uh, that he had everything necessary for the assignment, and what he didn't have, God gave to him. It says here that the king granted to Ezra everything necessary to lead an entire wave of returnees out of Persia back into the promised land. The king paid the expenses of the trip. He gave tremendous wealth in order to make this happen. He followed the example, frankly, of King Cyrus who went before him, and Ezra was the man chosen to lead this trip. He was a man whose life was, ba was a balance of devotion to wisdom, a commitment to righteousness, and a desire to show others the way of God. It says that he was a scribe, but I like the phrase, he was skilled in the law of Moses. The Hebrew word there means he was a professional of the highest order. The journey that he's about to undertake, and it tells us uh, the time span, uh, he led away the second wave of returnees about, about 65 years after the first returnees had, had come back under Zerubbabel. He leads a wave of returnees, and the trip is, took about 14 weeks and spanned about 900 miles. 
Now think about this. It, tells, it doesn't tell us about the trip. It doesn't tell us about any of the highs or lows along the way. But Ezra wasn't concerned with those details. All he wanted you to know was that God made sure that the king of the most powerful superpower of, the gener of that generation gave us all the resources we needed to do to accomplish the assignment that God had given to us. And then we arrived having gotten there. And he says, it's because God was in charge of the entire trip. You see, the king had been a source of resources, and we know from the Esther story that, that, that there were other intrigues going on that probably made the king uh, disposed towards this trip. But Ezra simply looks at those visible circumstances and takes a step back and says, let me be sure you see the invisible realities behind the visible circumstances. Listen, we have to develop a perspective that sees the invisible hand of a sovereign God moving among the nations to bring things to pass because otherwise we get caught up looking only at physical circumstances and we get caught up just like the people around us. We're wringing our hands. We're scared to death. We're worried about how things are going to unfold. The, the world seems to be going up in flames. It's falling apart. Everything is bad. And we get on that roller coaster. That roller coaster is only for people who don't understand that there is a God who still sits on a throne. You see, we have to develop that mindset. So there's, there's a part of the Esther story that, that gives us some backstory here, but Ezra's not concerned about that. He wants to make sure you understand, I was raised up, I was given the assignment, the king gave me everything that I needed, we went 14 weeks, 900 miles, we arrived, everything was good, and it was all because God said, this is my purpose. And Ezra said, I was just a piece of that story. We need to have that kind of perspective, but how do you get it? Well, understanding God's Word produces that kind of faith. You see, in verse 9, he says, For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifteenth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. There is a continual emphasis all the way through this book that God is the providential source of the restoration of His people. How do we have that kind of faith? It comes from being in the Word of God. I mean, why is it that, that people... Why is it that children will... Uh, I've used this story before. Why is it that my kids would jump off the edge of the swimming pool into daddy's arms when they wouldn't jump off the edge of the swimming pool into somebody else's arms? What's the difference? The difference was relationship. You see, we have, we grow our faith because of the time that we spend in the presence of God. That's why when I say, read your Bible every single day, be in prayer every single day, memorize Scripture, make these the normal habits of your life, it's not because you need to be able to check off and say, okay, the preacher told me to do this, check, check, check. It's not about some religious obligation. It's not a duty that, that you know, you get a, a better seat location and at the heavenly banquet table if you if you have more days marked off on your checklist it, it's not about that it's that 
Time spent in the presence of God is time that develops our faith, our ability to trust in him, to have a certainty that he really is big enough to present and to handle uh, all the things that, that we have to face. We have this idea that, that the world revolves around us and we need God to come alongside and kind of help us out. The reality is the world revolves around God and we're a part of his story and he's got assignments for us, assignments that we can only fill when we trust the director of the story. Understanding God's word produces faith. But here, verse 10, I want us to camp here for a minute because devotion to God's word inspires confidence. Look at verse 10. It said, For Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and, stat and ordinances in Israel. Okay, uh, a, couple of, a couple of words here. Uh, this translation I really like. It says, For Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord. Uh, some of your translations will say he determined in his heart or Ezra set his heart on the study of the word. Um, Ezra understood the heart of God and was prepared to serve him because he had a confidence that came from extended time in the word of God. When it says that he resolved to study the, 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 the law of the Lord, um, that tells me that the that the first thing that we need to talk about here is that the time he spent in God's Word was not just a hobby or a casual pastime. He was serious about it. Years ago, I had somebody say, Pastor, I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, but I'm, I'm not getting anything out of it. I said, well, then stop reading it. They went, wait, wh what? I said, yeah, quit reading the Bible and start studying the Bible. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Here's the thing. Occasionally somebody will say something to me like, man, I could never get all that stuff out of that passage that you, that you had in your sermon. How do you do that? There's no magical formula. It's time. You want to know the difference between your study of a passage and my study of a passage? My study of a passage takes about 12 to 14 hours. Your study of a passage probably takes you 10 minutes to read it. Now, I'm, I'm not throwing rocks. I just want you to understand this. You see, because here's the way this works. Uh, and you don't have to raise your hand, but inside you're going to be going, yeah, that's me. Um, here's what happens. How many times do, do you read something... And you read it, and the language is odd. It's not the kind of language we use in everyday conversation, maybe. And, and you read it, and you go, yeah, I have no idea what that was. But you check it off because you read it, and then you move on. See, the only difference between you and me is I say, okay, I don't get that at all. And so I'm going to stay right here until I figure it out. Do you know how, how your life would be transformed literally transformed if instead of reading the bible and checking off your 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 daily um, checklist you could take a chapter and you could stay there until you felt like you understood it that you studied it that you poured into it that you let the spirit pour into you have you ever taken a chapter and just read it and then read it again 
and then read it again. And over about three days' time, you, you set it out that you're going to read it like, like 12 times. You know what happens when you read the, the same piece of Scripture 12 times? The 12th time, you start to see things that you never saw the first 11 times. Why? Let me explain why. Because God tells us in, in, in the Bible that that he will make himself available. He will be found by who? By those who seek him with all their heart. We treat the Bible like we're tourists on a whirlwind tour. You know, when you go to a, to a tourist place and you say, oh, we got to hit all the high spots. we got to go here and here and here and here because these are all the places that everybody talks about. We treat the Bible like that. We're like, oh, John 3.16 and, 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 and Noah and the flood and, and, and Daniel and the lion's den. And, 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 and we, we've got these tourist spots that we love. But the Bible was never meant to be a tourist attraction. It was meant to be for explorers. Somebody who camps out and digs down and says, I, I have to get this. I have to know this. You say, well, well, if I put that kind of time and energy into a single chapter, I'm going to be working on the Bible my whole life. Yes. <laughs> but the treasures don't present themselves to the casual observer. Time in the Word of God builds our faith. Devotion, serious study in the Word of God, that's what inspires our confidence. Now, let me tell you how this lays out. Look at, look at this verse 10. It says that he was, and the way that, that it's written in Hebrew, um, the firmly resolved goes with all of these three things. Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord. And Ezra had firmly resolved to practice it. And Ezra had firmly resolved to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. All right, let me tell you. The first step is serious study of the Bible. The second step is obedience, living out the ethical implications of, of, of what the Bible teaches. In other words, living this life that is in us because Christ is in us. We learn that. Uh, we learn more and more how to do that because of the Word. So here's what we have. We have serious study of the Word of God. Not casual, not touristy, serious exploration of the Word of God. What that does in us is it gives us the confidence to live that life of obedience that we've been called to live. To, to actually sh shape our days, to order our ways on the basis of that Word. It said Ezra firmly resolved to study the Word of God. But then he firmly resolved to obey it, to live it out. There was just as much deep conviction in him. He wasn't studying the Bible because he wanted to win at the next family night of Bible trivia. He wasn't just collecting information, assembling data. He was learning who God was. And that produced in him the determination to live this life that was in him. And then it says, and then he had a firm resolve to teach the ways of God to other people. Let me bring that out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. We call that making disciples. 
Now you say, well, you know, making disciples, that's a good thing. That's what pastors do. Well, it's one thing pastors ought to do. But guess what? That command to make disciples was not given to pastors. It was given to you. And it wasn't a suggestion or an option. It wasn't for people who want to go above and beyond. It wasn't for people who want to go the second mile. Jesus said, you go and make disciples, baptize them and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. He told that to each one of us. That's why it's the Great Commission. We are to be disciple makers. You say, I don't don't know how to make disciples. Great. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to say that. You have to admit that. But let me show you this simple process. I need to make disciples. I need to come alongside somebody, and I need to help them learn how to live the Christian life. Great. I want to do that. I just don't know how. All right. You know how you help somebody else know how to live the Christian life? You learn how to live the Christian life. In your own walk, you learn how to follow in Jesus' steps. You learn how to let the life of Christ flow through you and be on display and be active and involved. Great. How do I do that? (sighs) Serious study of the Word of God. This is a very simple, straightforward process. You put diligent time and effort into understanding, comprehending the Word of God, taught by the Spirit of God who is in you. And as that that happens, you develop faith in God, and it brings you to a place where you're living out in obedience what you're learning. The Word of God working its way through you, the life of Christ in you, you're living a life of obedience, and now... Disciple-making is nothing more than you saying, hey, you want to know how I do, how I read the Bible? Let's go get coffee, and I'll just show you what I do, because it's not anything real fancy, but it helps me understand the Word of God better, which helps me know how to live the Christian life better. And then God, the New Testament builds in this great safety net, He says, the the New Testament tells us by example that there's always somebody in front of you in the faith and there's always somebody coming up behind you in the faith. And so when you say, I'm ready to be obedient and I'm going to make disciples, I'm going to teach somebody how to do the Christian life, you know what your safety net is? You get somebody that comes alongside and you say, I'm just going to show you what I do. But your safety net is you're going to attach yourself to somebody that's ahead of you. You want to know how you figure out what to do with the person who's behind you? You quiz the person that's in front of you. And if somebody is pouring into you and you're pouring into them and there's serious Bible study happening in all of those lives and there's serious obedience to the commands of Christ being played out, guess what? Now the world is changing. It bothers me when people say, well, you know, I I don't have any influence. I can't change the world. Do you? Here's, here's the, the, the problem with, with the phrase, the, the, t- the terminology of changing the world. We've read the history books in our high school history classes that listed the great world changers, you know, their military leaders or their heads of state or their explorers or their 
But the fact of the matter is, you go to the back of that history book and you look in the, the index of names, and it's like, what, five, six, eight pages long? That's how many of those kinds of people there are in human history. We're judging ourselves. We say, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a world changer because we're judging ourselves against these people who have been in extraordinary situations. God used them in really extraordinary ways. What we need to do is we need to measure ourselves by a very different standard. I've told you before how emotionally um, overwhelming it was uh, a few years ago when Diane and I were in Rome and we, we went and visited one of the catacombs. And in the catacomb, there were four layer levels underground. And, and the guide asked us how many people we thought were buried there. And there were different guesses, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. Turns out that single catacomb was estimated to have held 500,000 Christian believers. And that's only one of several catacombs throughout the, the area of Rome. And what was overwhelming to me about that is that I've studied history and I know the names, but these were 500,000 followers of Jesus. There were no markers. There were no names. There's no records. And yet, there was only one Julius Caesar. There was only one Constantine. There was only one Augustus. But guess what? They're in the history books. But the Christian church outlived the Roman Empire. Why? Because God doesn't move the world on the basis of Julius Caesar's and Constantine's despite what the history books tell us. God changes the world through the lives of unnamed, unrecognized followers of Jesus who simply go about their normal traffic patterns of life making disciples, handing the faith off to the next person so that the world is different when we left it than it was when we got it. And it starts with the people who say, I'm going to pour myself into the Word of God so that the Spirit who is in me can teach me and strengthen me and help me to understand who God is and what his plan is. And I'm going to learn the word of God, and I'm going to resolve to live in obedience to what he teaches me. And then I'm going to resolve to share what I've learned so that other people's lives are impacted by that word as well. We would never know the name of Ezra, except that God in his wisdom gave us this record because most of the characters in the Word of God are by themselves not that impressive. They're just regular people. That should call us to quit comparing ourselves to the historical movers and shakers that make it into the history books and instead, find our way into the Word of God where serious study of the Word of God, obedience to the ethical implications of our faith, and teaching of others through intentional disciple-making, that is the way the world actually changes. Understanding God's Word produces faith. 
Devotion to God's Word inspires confidence. Living out God's Word creates courage. Listen, from verse 11 to 25, that is a record of the letter that Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. And that would have been a letter that Ezra produced every time they ran across a Persian uh, government official. We have permission to make this trip. We have the rightful ownership of all the wealth that is, that's in our group. Uh, that would have been his, his, his hall pass to get all the way to Jerusalem. You can read that letter if you want to. I want to come down to verse 27. And, and from verse 27, chapter 7, verse 27, through chapter 9, this section is called uh, the, the Ezra Memoirs. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's called the Ezra Chronicles. Uh, he collected the material for the book of Ezra, but apparently from this verse in Ezra chapter 7 through chapter 9, these appear to have been entries that he pulled out of his own diary as he was recording uh, the events uh, that were unfolding around him. So this, this eyewitness testimony uh, that, that comes, we've got uh, we, in verse 26, 27 to 28, I want you to see the courage that comes from being the man willing to live out the Word of God that he had given, that he invested his life to. Verse 27 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to glorify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And has extended favor to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officials. So I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God that was upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He says, following the Lord's decree, following the king's decree, he realized that ultimately it wasn't the king who was responsible, but that God was doing this. God had put this in the king's heart. God is utilizing uh, the, the so-called movers and shakers in human history to unfold his plans. He is the invisible hand moving the pieces around the chessboard. And because Ezra could see behind the, the curtain, he could see that the events of, of his day uh, really displayed the involvement of God who was invisibly behind what you could see. For him, the flow of events revealed that God is sovereign over nations. And because he could see that, he's, he's learned about God because he's poured his life into the Word. The Word has, has, has shaped him. He's been obedient to that Word. He's, he, he teaches others that Word. All of that brings him to the place where he says, so I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God that was upon me. In other words, I had the courage I had the confidence, I had the belief that I was able to do what God was asking me to do because now I know how God unfolds things. One of the worst things that can happen in the life of a church is when somebody says, oh, I, yeah, I, I can't do anything. I, I really don't have any skills. I don't have any gifts. Well, here's the thing. Here's what that tells me. It tells me that you're not spending time in the Word of God. Now, wait a minute. I, I didn't want you to think that, Pastor. Well, that's what I think. Because when you spend time in the Word of God, 
it gives you a confidence in who God is. You learn who He is. You're, you're strengthened by understanding Him and the way He works. And once you understand the way He works, then all of a sudden you realize that He takes people just like you. And He gives them what they don't have without Him. And they make them adequate to the task. You know, we have like, what, 300 people, kids and adults in Awana clubs every Wednesday night. Do you actually know where that name comes from? Awana? Who knows the verse? Anybody know the verse? What's it stand for? Adequate workers are not ashamed. How do you get to be an adequate worker? You simply make yourself available to God. Because you have in you everything necessary to be useful to the kingdom. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have a 5,000 volume theological library. You know what you have to have? You have to have a Bible and a commitment to let Christ live in you. Serious study of the Word of God. Determined obedience to follow the commands of Jesus. Intentional disciple-making by investing in the lives of other people around you. There's the Christian life. It's that simple. I can never preach. That's okay, we got a preacher. I could never be a youth pastor. That's okay, we got a youth pastor. I could never, I could never lead a ministry. That's okay, we got ministry leaders. You know what we need you to do? We need you to get serious about the Word of God. We need you to follow in obedience the life that you've been called to live. And we need you to disciple somebody that's in your sphere of influence. That's what we need you to do. And it's not even because we need it. It's because that's what God told you to do. Ezra recognized the providential hand of God, so he enlisted other leaders who then shared the responsibility for God's work. It says, I knew that the hand of the Lord was on me, so I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let me bring this into the New Testament for you. The Apostle Paul loved the church in Philippi. He had planted that church, and they had been dear to him. In fact, when he was in prison, it was the Philippian church that sent uh, gifts and encouragement to him on a regular basis. The Philippian letter is just a little four-chapter short letter in the New Testament, but it is Paul's thank-you note back to that church. And while there's some incredible theology that he gives them in that letter, he starts with a couple of very interesting verses that I want you to hear. In Philippians, the first chapter, Paul is, is opening the letter, and he says this beginning in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus." 
For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Paul tells us that the essence of a church, it's not that we're a collection of people who happen to show up to a particular location for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. That's not what makes a church. What makes a church is there are people who have invested in each other's lives. They're mutually discipling. They're, they're drawing from those that are ahead of them on the path. They're giving to those who are behind them on the path. And he says, and I pray for you in gratitude every single day when I think of your church because from the first day until now in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel, you have been right there beside me. We are team. We are one. This is the body of Christ. So don't come here to just sit and soak. Find your way into the serious study of the Word of God. How do I do that, Pastor? You say everything starts with that. How do I do that? We have a class. It's a part of Evergreen Institute. I don't even know the official name of the class. You don't know it? Preaching and teaching? What's it called? Fundamentals of teaching. Now, I think the name sort of scares people off because they're like, oh, I don't know if I take this, they're going to make me teach. <laughs> you know, probably a better name for that class would be um, How to Handle the Word of God. Because it is a class that will change your life. Because you will learn. You don't have to have, you don't have to spend $3,000 on books. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You simply need to understand how to dig deep in the Word of God. How to be an explorer and not a tourist. That class will change your life. You should take it. Why? Because if I can now not just read the Bible and shrug my shoulders, but if I can study the Bible and learn who God is and understand what it is that there, the meat that is there, that shapes the life. I'm now no longer trying to live the Christian life because there are rules and regulations, some things you do and some things you don't do, and that's just called being a Christian. No, the life flows out of what we know about who God is, the life of Christ flowing through us. So I'm going to study the Word of God. I'm going to be obedient in my life. And then I'm just going to begin to help other people discover what I've discovered. That's called making disciples. So what would a church look like that had a thousand people in serious study of the Word of God, seriously following the life of Christ, and seriously and intentionally pouring themselves out into the lives of other people. What would that church look like? I'll tell you exactly what it would look like. It would look like the church in Jerusalem. They went from 120 to 3,000 in one day, then to 5,000, and then they quit counting. Why? Because they were serious about the Word of God. They were serious about obedience. They were serious about sharing that life with other people in very simple, straightforward ways. And it was done by people whose names you've never heard. This is the normal 
regular, ordinary Christian life. Don't you want that? If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's the starting place. You see, His Word doesn't even mean much without His Spirit living in you. The Spirit of God in us is the teacher. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. If you already know Jesus and you already say, well, I'm a believer, but I, I'm, I'm not living that life. Okay. Why don't you come this morning? Here's the invitation. There's a gym in town that advertises themselves as a judgment-free zone. Okay. This is a judgment-free zone. I'm going to invite you to come and stand or kneel at the front. You can, you can pray with one of our pastors if you want to. You can just, just make a, a prayer of commitment. But here's, here's the invitation. Lord, I want to know Your Word better. I want to learn to study Your Word, to be transformed by Your Word flowing through me. I make the commitment to find a place and not treat it like a tourist spot, but to dig down and let your Spirit teach me so that my life is transformed into obedience so that I can disciple another follower of Jesus. What if you came down today and you just knelt or you stood and you said, Lord, I'm making that commitment. Now, the devil right now is whispering in some of your ears. People will think that you're not already doing that if you go down there. Like I said, first of all, this is a no-judgment zone, but second of all, we already know you're not doing it. Or people whose lives that you were, being, that you were pouring into would be, would be here following in your steps of the way you do the Christian life. I'm not here throwing rocks at you. I'm saying, don't you want more than you have? Because you have it all, but you're not living it all. Don't you want more? This space. In your sanctified imagination, this space becomes the throne of grace. And you come to the throne of grace and you say, I want your word to change me. I want obedience that's not hit and miss. It's not here and there. It's not come and go. I want to walk faithfully in the life that I've been given. And I want to do something that I've never done before. I want to be used by you to impact the life of somebody else for Christ. Let me tell you what will happen. If you get serious about reading the Word of God, God tells us that He will be found by those who seek them with their whole heart. You get serious about the Word of God, the Spirit will teach you. 
the Spirit teaches you, you will become transformed in your determination to live an obedient life because the Christ who is in you will become more and more familiar to you. You'll understand more and more about who you are in Him. And then one of these days, you're going to say to, to that person that you know, hey, I don't know if I have anything for you, but you want to know how I'm doing the Christian life? I, I'd love to have coffee and just talk about it. And do you know what? You've just moved off of the bench into the game and you've become a world changer. It starts with the Word. Passes through obedience. Finishes with disciple making. Folks, that's the church. That's who we are. Lord, in this moment, there is something here among us and we know that that something is your presence. And we love what we experience in this place and among these people. But Lord, it's clear from your word that you're calling the people evergreen to new levels of living this life that you've put in us. Father, don't let us be content to just sit and absorb, but give us a fire in our bones that enough is never enough. We want more, more. And we want to make a difference while we are still here, breathing in and out as a part of your plan for our lives. Father, stir us here. Draw us completely into your presence. Father, receive from this people hearts that are given to you without reservation. Draw us deeper into the life that you've already given us and help us to live out the reality of your presence in us. Father, in this moment, let us become Ezra in our generation. A man who probably had no great ambitions to begin with, but spent enough time in the Word of God to realize that he was being invited into something spectacular. Lord Jesus, find that here among this people. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.